So this morning, as we continue to look through the Westminster Confession of Faith, and we're currently in the second chapter, which is about God and the Holy Trinity, we come to a portion in the first article or paragraph that talks about who God is in many different respects. And one of the things it says about God, which is actually somewhat controversial in some circles, even reform circles, is the statement here when it says that God is the most pure spirit without passions. That God does not have passion. And the scripture that is used by the Westminster Assembly to prove this point in the confession is taken from Acts chapter 14. So let's turn there. Acts chapter 14. Let's begin in verse 8. We read, And there sat a certain man at Lystra, impotent in his feet, being a cripple from his mother's womb, who never had walked. The same heard Paul speak, who steadfastly beholding him and perceiving that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand upright on thy feet. And he leaped and walked. And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lycaonia, The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. Do you understand? So because they had witnessed this miracle that the apostles had wrought in the name of Jesus Christ, the people thought they were from the pantheon of gods. They say, the gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. And so they called Barnabas Jupiter, we read, and Paul Mercurius, or Mercury, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before their city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates and would have done sacrifice with the people. Do you see? They were going to offer animal sacrifices to Paul and Barnabas. Which when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of, they rent or tore their clothes and ran in among the people crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you and preach unto you that you should turn from these vanities unto the living God which made heaven and earth and the sea and all things that are therein, who in times past suffered all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he left not himself without witness in that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people that they had not done sacrifice unto them. You see the picture? The picture is that Paul and Barnabas were just barely able to restrain them from sacrificing animals to them as gods. But what's really to the point here for our discussion this morning is look at how the apostles argue to these men that they are not gods. They say, 
we also are men of like passions with you. You see? That's the distinguishing mark. That's the difference between divinity and humanity that the apostles are bringing out. They say, we also are men like you, of like passions with you, i.e. men, as opposed to the divine, is characterized by having passion. That is to have feelings or emotion. And this is the text that the, the Westminster Simile uses to demonstrate that this doctrine that God is without passions is a biblical doctrine. But also, you could add to that another place in Scripture, James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Towards the end of the chapter, we read in verse 16, Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then James goes into this illustration of the point he just made. And so contextually, this is an encouragement for us to pray. This is an encouragement for us to pray for one another, even that those who are ill may be healed. And he argues, James argues, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And then he gives an example of that from the scripture, and he talks about Elias, or Elijah. He says, Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. This is that effectual prayer, that effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man. It was so effectual that by the prayers of this one man, this prophet of old, he was able to stop rain from the heavens for a period of three and a half years. Three and a half years. And not only that, but this prophet prayed again. And now the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. You see? Such, again, is the efficacy of the fervent prayer of a righteous man. But now, to our point. Look at how James makes this argument in verse 17. He starts off by saying that Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. You see? Why would he throw that in there? What's the significance of that in saying well, Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are. You see, the point is, even though this sounds like something very spectacular, and indeed it was, that Elijah could pray and that it would stop the rain, and later that he would pray again and the rain would come, as remarkable as that is, don't think, reader, that's what James is saying, don't think that Elias was anything more than an ordinary man. 
And that's what it's meant here when it says that Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. So don't think, brethren, that you cannot pray and that great things may be accomplished as the Lord uses your prayer. Because Elijah, for example, Elias, was also a man subject to like passions as we are. He was just an ordinary common man like we are. And so if he can pray and have these kind of results, then we should be encouraged to pray. That's the import of the passage. But again, to our point, it's interesting of all ways that James could have described Elias as a man who was like every other man. He does this by saying that he has passions. You see? And so here the Word of God again is teaching us that this quality or attribute of man in having passions or feeling or emotion is something that belongs to his humanity. That's the point. James is saying, Elias is a man just like you are, and how do I point that out? Oh, well, he had passion, he had emotion just like you do. He was human. That's, that's the import of this. And so again, feelings or passions belong to humanity. The Greek term that was in those two texts that we went to in Acts chapter 14, verse 15, and James 5, verse 17, is a Greek word, hamoia pathes. Hamoia pathes. It's broken up into two words. It's a compound word. The first word is hamoias, which means similar in appearance or character. And the second word you might recognize is pathos which means a suffering or affection or passion. And so this compound word, homoeopathes, means to be similarly affected, or as we read in Little and Scott, having like feelings or passions. And it's interesting in the Greek, this is one word, it's a compound word, but it's one word. So when we read again in Acts 14. And Paul and Barnabas are appealing to the people and saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions. That phrase of like passions is really being translated from this one word, this Greek word. And it's the same Greek word that we have again in James chapter 5 where we are told that Elijah was a man subject to like passions. That phrase, subject to like passions, again, it's just rendered just from this one word in the Greek. And so again, I think it's clear that Scripture is teaching us that the way that humanity is being distinguished from divinity is by this Greek word, that humanity is hamoia pathes. Humanity is similar in our passions. Now, to say that God has no passions, as I said before, is controversial. And one might readily object, 
But look in the scripture and see how many different times that we see God being spoken of in terms of having emotion. You know, he's angry or he's pleased, he's jealous, there is joy in the Lord. How then does that agree with you saying that God has no passions? Well, in Scripture we also read that God has a mouth and that God has ears and eyes and hands and feet. Are we then to argue in a similar fashion? Well, the Bible teaches us that God has a body because look at all these places where it talks about all these different members of God's body. So God must have a physical body. You see, so to argue for God having emotion is really the same as arguing for God having all these different bodily parts. But again, Jesus told the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, God is a spirit. God is a spirit. God doesn't have a body. He doesn't have all these different bodily members. And so then, how are we to understand those places in Scripture that speaks of God in these terms? Well, you see, the Lord God is using these expressions to accommodate the capacity of our understanding. So remember, God is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. We as finite creatures cannot understand God as He is in Himself in being infinite. It's beyond our capability. And so God was pleased to condescend to us, to our finiteness and reveal himself to us in these figurative ways in ways for example as if he did have a mouth or ears or eyes or hands or feet or emotions the way that Calvin describes this is he says it's like a divine lisp as mothers do to their children these anthropomorphisms it's called in the scripture, that is, describing God in a form as if he was man, that's what that word literally means, anthropomorphism, these are like a mother's talk to a baby, because, again, the Lord is condescending to our finite understanding. And so God reveals himself, And this does not at all distract from the truthfulness of that revelation, but nonetheless, he reveals himself in a way which he seems to us in our limited understanding, not as he is in himself. Because God, as he is in himself, is, (laughs) to use a colloquial expression, mind-blowing. It's beyond our comprehension. And again, These are revelations that are true. These are revelations that are given to us about true things, about who God is. Such that when we look at these these figures of speech in the Scripture, we should understand that there is indeed some reality in God's nature which corresponds to these human characteristics. Not that, again, not that God has a human body or human emotions, but there's something in our experience in humanity 
with the members of our body and with our feelings, there's something about that in our experience that in some way corresponds to some reality in God's nature. And so that is how that those figurative expressions are helpful and how we are to understand them. When we say that God has no passions, we are not saying that God's love is a truncated or reduced human love so as to have no feeling. It's something greater than how we experience love. It's what we would expect from a divine nature. That God's love is something so great that we can't comprehensively understand it as it is in himself. And so when we say that God has no feelings, it doesn't detract from the greatness of his love. Because again, these feelings that we experience in our humanity are analogous to a true reality in the divine nature just not identical to it because again it's figurative my notes for this talk came originally from a sermon that I did from John chapter 11 verse 35 where we read simply that Jesus wept so how is it that Jesus who was the God man could weep well His weeping pertains to his human nature, not his divine nature. Indeed, when we talk about our passions in the scripture, it often makes reference to our abdominal region because it uses this word that's translated as the bowels, and the bowels are then figuratively speaking, put for our feelings or our emotion. And so already you can see how that if God is a pure spirit, as the confession says, without body, parts, or passions, then it makes sense that the thing that we experience as feelings have much to do with our physical body. And so, our abdominal area, or the viscera, is really the seat of our affection, biblically speaking. Because the Bible uses this word, splenknon, in the Greek, uh, which is derived from another Greek word, splain, which you might recognize, from which we get the word spleen. And so this Greek word, which we'll see where it's used in a couple places here in the scripture, is a way of referring to, again, the the visceral part of our body, the intestines. And it's translated as bowels. Now, we know that it can be literally translated as the bowels or our intestines because this word is used in Acts chapter 1, verse 19. And I won't go there to that passage, but it's about 
when Judas Iscariot hung himself, and the scripture tells us that his body fell and that his, uh, his bowels gushed out. And it's that word, same word here that I just mentioned, that Greek word splanknon, that's used there. And so clearly there, the context is that quite literally and physically is talking about the bowels. But this very same Greek word uh, is also used in other places where clearly it's intended to be figurative. If you will, please turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. The same Greek word there underlies the text. We read in verse 12, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. And so to the modern reader, this might seem like a strange thing to come across here when it says that we are to put on the bowels of mercies. And of course, in this case, it's not literal, but figurative. And figuratively, it means compassion, pity, sympathy, in this inward affection of mercy. All these things are meant here by the word bowels, the bowels of mercy. And we see the same sense in other places, or again, the same Greek word is used. For example, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, we read, But whoso hath this world's good, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? Do you see? Here in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, the same word is used again, literally bowels or spleen, or it's derived from the word for spleen. But here it is speaking of the bowels of compassion, so it's figurative. Why would the Holy Spirit, as he indicts the Word of God, use a figure like this? Isn't it because this is a true reflection of who we are in our humanity? That when we do experience strong feelings or passion, we often feel it viscerally. You know, we've heard the expression, a gut feeling. The same kind of idea here that the Bible is, is speaking to. Now, there are other places, and I won't go to all of them, but just a couple more in Philippians, first in chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, For God is my record, Paul the Apostle is speaking, For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. And so again, that might seem to the modern reader quite an odd expression. 
but it's actually very profound and keen insight in our human nature. And so here, it speaks of the bowels of Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Again, it's, it's the compassion and the mercy and the pity that the Lord Jesus Christ has. And so the Apostle is saying that he longed after the people here in Philippi in the bowels of Jesus Christ, in the compassion and mercy and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses the same Greek word again in the next chapter, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, where we read, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. So, if there is any consolation in Christ, if there's any comfort of love, if there's any fellowship with the Holy Spirit, if there are any bowels and mercies, if there's any compassion, if there's any pity or mercy, fulfill ye my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And so again, we see that there's this association between the body and our feelings. And that the scripture, by using this word for bowels, and as we saw, the same Greek word can't even be used literally for the bowels or intestines, we see that the scripture is teaching us this association, that the feelings, biblically speaking, are associated with uh, that part of our body, the abdominal region. So we said all this to point out that the weeping of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of his emotion and feelings, biblically speaking, is associated with his human nature his human body, as opposed to his divine nature. For again, as we read in the confession, God is without a body, without a physical body. And so, properly speaking, the divine nature, such as the divine nature that we find in Jesus Christ, but also when we speak of the triune God, God, who is in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, but is the same in substance, equal in power and glory, that in respect to that divine nature, properly speaking, we would say that God does not have passion or feelings. The Puritan William Ames, in his great classic work, the marrow of theology also gives us a helpful distinction between passions and affections. There are places where those words are used synonymously. But here we're going into the sense of these words perhaps in a more classically philosophical sense and theological sense. Ames says that passions starts from something external to the subject 
and ends by affecting the subject within. In other words, this is to be influenced by something outside of us. So I'm saying that in one sense, passions is a broad term that can just be synonymous to feelings. But in a more precise fashion, passion is when we are affected by something outside of us, and so inwardly our state is changed. We are inwardly affected by something outside of us, something external to us. And being thus affected is what is called a passion. Ames says, affections, on the other hand, starts within us, and then we affect, hence affections, something outside of ourselves. Do you see? Again, this is more the kind of refinement a philosopher would make. But it's important, and it's helpful, I think, in understanding these things. In the Collins English Dictionary, it gives a definition or sense of the word passion, and it notes that this is the sense in philosophy. It says that passion is any state of the mind in which it is affected by something external, such as perception, desire, etc., as contrasted with action. So that's really the same idea that William Ames was bringing out. The Oxford English Dictionary defines passion as the fact or condition of being acted upon or affected by an external agency, which is, again, what Ames was saying. Uh, passion is an effect or impression produced by action from without. So in a philosophical sense, the receiving of any action can be also called a passion. Again, the Oxford English Dictionary says that in psychology or art, passion is any mode in which the mind is affected or acted upon, whether vehemently or not. And then it actually gives a reference here to this same passage we've been talking about in Acts chapter 14. It gives a reference there in Acts chapter 14, verse 15. So you can see how clear this is, that this is the sense of the word passion. And we have to remember also that the men that composed the Westminster Confession of Faith were very well educated in language and in philosophy as well. And so if we want to understand what they mean by passions in the confession, we should look to these things. And so, back to William Ames and his marrow theology, he says, There is no cause above God. He is the first cause of all things. Therefore, God cannot be, quote, affected, unquote, by something external to himself. Do you see? This is very clear. We just showed how that passion technically and philosophically means that something from outside of us affects us and changes our inner state. But you see, you can't say that about God. Because God cannot be affected by anything outside of himself. Because God is the first cause of all things. There's no cause that's above God. As Ames says, God acts but it's not acted upon. 
That's who God is, as a being, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. He cannot be acted upon so as to be affected. And again, technically speaking, and to be precise, passion means that you are being affected upon by something outside of yourself. And so in that sense, we cannot say that God has passion. And so Stephen Charnock, in his work, The Existence and Attributes of God, which, by the way, is a key work on theology proper, on the doctrine of who God is. He says, If God were capable of our passions, he would discover himself in cases as we do. Do you see what he means? If God was like us in being capable of passion, then just as we sometimes have that experience where we suddenly find ourselves in a certain mood or emotional state, angry, happy, uh, sad, whatever it might be, we discover ourselves suddenly in these, these cases, these different states of emotion. But how could we say that about God? How could we say that God would suddenly discover himself in such a case where he's been affected upon and so has this feeling or this passion. You see, what this all speaks to then is of the many different attributes that God has, the many excellencies that he has in his character. One of them, and we spoke about this before, but this is a key one, is the immutability of God. The immutability of God. That means that God cannot change. And so this is another reason why it would be improper to speak of God as being affected. Because to be affected implies that there's change. It implies that you've gone from one state to the next state. Because you've been affected. You were first in this original state, Something outside of you affected you, so now your state changes to a new and different state. But to say that about God would be to say that he can change. And yet, Scripture is clear that God is immutable. God cannot change. Again, we can just go to those Scripture references that the Westminster Divines offer us on this point of God's immutability. And we read in James chapter 1, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. The Holy Spirit is describing the immutability of God. In God, there's no shadow of turning. James says that these good gifts come from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness. If there's no variableness in God, then how can he change from one state to another? Which again, is a necessary part of the definition of a passion. And then perhaps even in in a more express fashion or plain fashion, In Malachi chapter 3, verse 6, we read, For I am the Lord, I change not. 
Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. God expressly says, I am the Lord. I change not. So if God cannot change and he is immutable, which the word of God teaches that he is, then how is it that he could have passion? How is it that he could be affected and so have a change of his state? Furthermore, we are not to be confused by the Incarnation in this respect. When the second person of the Godhead became man and took on flesh, the divine nature was not changed. God was not changed by the Incarnation. The divine nature was not converted into manhood, and human nature was not converted into divine nature. The classic formula for the person of Jesus Christ is that he consists of two natures, but they are distinct. Athanasius went at length. You could read uh, his statement on it, and you'll see all the variety of ways that, that this can be clarified. But there's no conflation. There's no confusion of these natures in Christ. They are always remain distinct. You have the human nature and you have the divine nature. But at the same time, these two distinct natures coexist in one person. It's not as if Jesus Christ has two persons in himself, one divine and one human. No. Two distinct natures, but one person, which, by the way, the notion of two distinct persons is an old heresy called Nestorianism. So this is how we can think of the Incarnation. The immutable took on the mutable. The infinite took on the finite. The non-affected put on the affected, that is, the passions. So the Lord Jesus Christ took upon himself human flesh. But again, his divine nature was in no way changed in the Incarnation. It remains intact and distinct from his human nature. And so, I believe that the Westminster Assembly is justified biblically here in saying that God is without passions. Let us pray. O blessed Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do praise you, for you are wonderful as that most pure spirit. And we praise you for all the excellencies that are in your own character. O God, teach us more and more from your words who you are, that we may more and more marvel at it, that we may marvel at who you are, and that even without helping ourselves, as it were, we would break out in praise because of your beauty and your excellencies. Be with us then now in this time of worship. May we serve you, O Lord. 
hear this prayer. We do pray in Jesus' name. Amen.